Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and there have been big changes in F1 over the past week with the possible sale of the Williams team, McLaren's group need to slash 1,200 jobs, and the ratification of new regulations including the $150 million cost cap and aero testing rules designed to close up the field. The F1 landscape is changing fast, and in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, we now have a clearer view of the future. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss the implications of all this are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Scott, coming to you first... Uh, this is a slightly dangerous thing to say, given there's lots of people, unfortunately, who who don't have uh, much work on or have lost jobs and that kind of thing. But it's it's amazing how much stuff there has been to cover in this gap, isn't it? It just shows how active Formula One's been in changing this. It's just one thing after another for those of us fortunate enough to be covering it. Yeah, there's been loads going on, um, both sort of behind the scenes, small developments, and then obviously the the the, the bigger stuff as well. We've had um, we we've obviously had no racing, but I feel like we've it's got getting to the point where we've sort of pushed past the tedium, haven't we? And we're getting proper seasons worth of uh, of storylines now. We've had a driver market explosion thanks to Ferrari and Sebastian Vettel's exit. Major new rules. Formula One's going to have pretty fundamental change to its uh, to, to its uh, foundations, um, starting immediately with this season as well. Uh, you've got everything that's going on with uh, a big U-turn from Williams's point of view, which we'll get into in this podcast. There's been there's been plenty. There's been plenty to to write about and obviously talk about. Yeah, and uh, it's changed Formula One, as I said in the in the introduction. There's uh, a bit a big impact. How's it been from your perspective, Mark? Obviously, like always, you you study goings on in Formula One while bombing around your locality on your bike, don't you? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I tried to explain last time. It, it, it's not simultaneous, those two things. It's the bike ride and then there's the Formula One stuff. It, it doesn't happen at the same time. You see me struggling with that concept there. Not when I picture it in my mind. Okay, well, whatever makes you happy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does. Just the occasional shunt just to uh, to, to lighten that. But yeah, it has been, uh, I think we were all expecting a slightly more subdued period of time. But uh, yeah, yeah, everyone's been, been really active. That's probably for the best, isn't it? Even though some of the news is bad, as people keep saying, you know, sometimes you've got to take a few a few negative moves in order to shore everything up in the long term. So I guess that's the uh, the upshot. Things are happening and and ultimately for the long-term good. It's one step back, two steps forward, isn't it? Really, it's um, what we're seeing uh, is a structural change in, in the sport, really, um, as it um, sort of transitions from um, the environment it, it, it built up over the boom years and which it's been struggling to maintain, but just about getting away with maintaining for a few years. Um, and the, um, the pandemic has sort of brought... Um, things to a, a a point where um, you can no longer do that, and so urgent action has had to be taken. So I suppose <clears throat> it's inevitable, really, that um, there have been um, big, uh, big um, developments. Um, you know, even though there's no racing going on because of the um, the lack of income. Well, we'll get onto this this later on, and I guess the hope is that even though the the pandemic is a is a terrible thing and has done a lot of damage, there could be kind of some small 
positives that come out of it in terms of the, the long term for, for Formula One. That's the one sort of slight uh, upside to what's been a, a terrible situation. Well, we've got lots to get through. So let's start off with uh, with Williams. They announced on Friday they've launched a strategic review, as they described it. This could lead to the whole company being sold, although divesting a minority or majority share or some other capital investment is also possible. Given Williams is F1's great independent, it's got the longest running ownership in F1, given Frank Williams still owns a majority share today, even if it's slightly smaller than his original 70%. How, how seismic is this, Mark? It's big, but it's been coming for a while. It's been coming for quite a while. Williams is still a medium-sized team, not a small one, um, and with all the operating costs um, implied in that. So it still has a big manufacturing base, far far bigger than Racing Points, for example, let alone Haas or Toro Rosso's. But it's not getting the results that would allow the spend associated with that size to be sustainable. And when you get down to the lower end of the field, the mismatch between costs and income can be alarming, you know, especially when you're not a small team. Um, so now the, the, the uh, annual report has just come out. Um, Williams is listed on the, um, on the stock exchange in, uh, I think, in one of the German stock exchanges. Um, and it's, it made a significant loss. Uh, previous two years were in profit, um, but you're one year behind on results. So the payments um, take a year to catch up. Um, the really terrible results began in 2018, continued into last year, of course. Um, and already, um, even before this was announced, we've seen them having to sell or take mortgages out on assets. In April this year, it was uh, refinanced, a £28 million refinanced with mortgages on the team land and other assets. Um, uh, Williams Automotive was um, sold at the end of 18, and that's a profit center. It used to contribute to the group's profits, but they've um, had to sell to invest into the F1 business. So other bits and pieces being sold, but you're sort of delaying the inevitable unless you can get back to turning in results. Um, and then that's uh, really... Obviously, what was going to be the um, the aim of this year to get a respectable haul of points, but uh, obviously that's um, if it was going to pan out that way, even that's been delayed. So yeah, um, it, it, not a surprise that it's it's happened. It was, but it, it didn't have to be today or uh, this week or next week. But it was it was clearly something like this was was coming for a while. I think one of the significant things with uh, with the Williams announcement is. It's a, it's quite a significant U-turn from the position that they've taken up to now. And even as recently as I remember in Azerbaijan last year, speaking to to Claire, because there were some rumours doing the rounds that Williams were looking to sell or, or, or give away a minority or majority stake even then. And she was adamant that wasn't the case, that you know, this was this was Frank's team. It's always been an independent. It's always done things its own way. But that attitude has sort of, to me anyway, has sort of felt like it's been a bit stuck in the 1990s. Um and I don't really see, I've always been a bit surprised that Williams has clung to that for so long. I completely understand why you can't, why it's so difficult to to, to cut ties and go in a different direction. But ultimately, you, you, you have to modernise and, and you have to move with, uh, with the way F1 has changed. I think had Formula One, it's, it's that sort of uh, chicken and egg scenario, really. If F1 had realised a few years ago the situation it was in, and it had made the changes that it's made now, there's every chance that Williams wouldn't have fallen 
into this situation. But if Williams and other teams hadn't fallen into this situation, F1 wouldn't have realised that it needed to make the fundamental change it has. So it's that sort of, you get caught in a in, in, a, in this weird sort of self-fulfilling prophecy almost. And the, the, the saving grace will be if all of the teams come through this, I think whether it's Williams or, or McLaren or any of some of the smaller teams, Haas, for example, if they all come through this, they will be, I think, taking part in a more competitive Formula One. They will have a genuine chance of not making huge losses every year, even if they're not spending a lot. And it will just become a, a better place. But it, it isn't a guarantee. And the Williams news is testament to that. It's not a guarantee that all the teams will will get through this, like, shall we say, unscathed. There will need to be some effort and some sacrifices made. And in Williams's case, that sacrifice will be potentially giving up its, its independence. I think it's important to note, yeah, as you alluded to there, there's there's myriad reasons behind why Williams is in this this kind of situation. And certainly, you can't argue that in recent years, it's made the most of it, its potential. It, it didn't have the potential really to be at the front, but it didn't need to be way off the back, certainly as it was last year. But also, F1 itself has, has become so difficult for what you might call a, a purely commercial team. It doesn't have an automotive manufacturer pouring money in. It doesn't have a billionaire owner that can just fling money at it. You can analyse all the other teams and argue that all of them do to a certain extent have that sort of facility and it's just not not sustainable for that to happen like I said there's other reasons if you listen back to the podcast we did I think it was us three did on the decline of Williams I think if you look back in our feed that was about the 6th of April we did that we really delved into the the reasons that we stretch all the way back to the end of the Renault partnership and the loss of Adrian Newey uh, so around 97 time but yeah, Williams has been increasingly out of step with what a modern Formula One team is, and that's probably as much fault of the changing world around it as it is for for Williams. But the way I looked at it is, some characterise this as a as a kind of almost a crisis, a fire sale or something. But I think it's quite positive because, as as I wrote in a piece on on the race dot com, and don't forget the hyphen if you look for that, as I always say, about why F one's fiercely independent team is uh, is willing to to. Sell up. There is a line between a fine line between determination and, and hubris, and I think they've come down on the right side of that. In that the Williams family have recognised that they do need to look at these sorts of options, and it's not necessarily going to be a sale. It feels like that might be the most likely outcome, but that's just one of the possibilities at, at this stage. So, I think they deserve credit for for kind of realising uh, it's come to it's come to that point. But as to whether there's decent buyers out there. We know there are some people out there who are looking at Formula One teams. There's always a number of uh, a number of interested parties when teams become available. Some of them serious. Some of them what might be branded as chances. So that's currently what Williams is wading through. Where do you two draw the line on um, on sort of what Williams is able to give up, and this still be a good decision for the for the team? Because if they if they if the company's just sold and it's sold completely so it's form fundamentally changes it's not called williams anymore so it isn't williams grand prix engineering then has like has it not waited too long isn't isn't that just isn't that just bailing out would it not need to just divest a minority or majority share and make so it so it still stays as williams in some way but a williams fit for purpose in 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 the modern day is there not a distinction to be made there how can it be sold and 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 still be williams i think regardless of 
of what its form is, if it survives, because it'll still be the same team, it's going to be in the same place. I can't see why you'd buy it and move it. It's going to be the same people. A bit like Racing Point is a new team compared to Force India. But of course, it's the old team because it's all the same thing. It's it's a, a paperwork. It's a technicality, uh, the ownership. So to me, I think anything that, that keeps the team stable and secure in whatever form is a success. How would you interpret it, Mark? You can look back and say, well, three years ago, Lawrence Stroll was in a position to buy the team, but um, Williams didn't want to sell then. The Williams family didn't want to sell then. Um, and now they're looking at the feasibility of doing that. But of course, Lawrence has moved on. He's bought Force India instead. That team is now poised to be Aston Martin. So, yeah, um, you, you have um, another wealthy uh, Canadian there, and Michael Latifi, who may be um, a potential purchaser. Uh, so I don't... You know, I don't think we're looking at the demise of the team, um, as, as you say. I think we're looking at probably a significant uh, change in ownership structure. Whoever ends up um, with the controlling interest in the team um, will be left to make their, their their own choices, and they they might very well be different. I would imagine they would be very different on on the matters of um, how much manufacturing capability you keep inside the team, how much of a customer team you become, um, those things which have mm, w- very much matter of pride for the Williams family, but maybe have contributed towards the difficulties they're in. Yeah, I feel like I, feel like I should point out, because I've realised that in my sort of devil's advocate adopting position there, I, I feel like I might have uh, stated that almost as fact as if that was my, as if I thought Williams were were, were being massive cop out by, by selling. I, I, I agree. I agree with the, the, the two of you. I think it's about, it's almost about um, being willing to sort of let the team have a sort of new stewardship, isn't it? They're like they, they have been excellent caretakers of this uh, this this grand prix organization for 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 many years as as the williams family but the williams team and the the business that it's created and the it has gone beyond that sort of small family family owned independent team it's going to take on a life of its own and while it would be it would be nice if the williams name if let's say it is sold, because obviously, as as we've said, we don't know if it will be. Whether it's sold or it has a, a new majority majority owner or whatever, it would be nice if the Williams team, uh, the Williams name remained, because that would just give whatever the team becomes sort of an intrinsic link to that history. Because the racing points comparison is a good one, but that point that team isn't Force India originally. It's not even Spiker or Midland. It's Jordan, but no one thinks of that. You know, no no one refers to it as the Jordan team, sort of in competition. But it it's that sort of feeling when you refer to the team and you acknowledge its history. It's Team Jordan, isn't it, or Team Silverstone? And it would be nice if there is a way, whatever the future holds for for, for Williams, that that link to the family isn't just consigned to to history. I'd be surprised if whoever, if somebody does buy it or buy control of it. If they do change the identity, I think only if somebody is buying it from an entity that already has a strong identity, they need to connect to it. Because we've seen how many times, when Racing Point was looking at possible identities, obviously it's ended up with the Aston Martin tie-in. But we keep having these teams that try and adopt old identities, Lotus obviously being the the famous one. People have tried to revive the Brabham name, etc. There's even been talk about reviving Martin, all sorts of things, because people are always looking for this illustrious name. Well, Williams has got one. It's the third greatest... Grand Prix team of the World Championship era in terms of it, its success. So I think it still is a brand that has value. 
So it's only if if there is a change in ownership and if it's from an entity that needs to to subsume that that own that identity and impose its own brand on it. I can't see why they'd uh, why they change it. So yeah, there's there's hope for the for the Williams uh, Williams name remaining. But it's 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 worth just noting a few of the a few of the details of the situation. Obviously connected to this, uh, they've uh, notified Rocket that they're terminating the sponsorship deal. So we'll see a new livery, new look for that team unveiled before the first race of the season. They've confirmed that whatever happens in this progress, which Claire Williams suggested could be three or four months, they hope to get it all sorted out. When whatever happens, this year's running budget is fine. Obviously, we don't know exactly what the season's going to look like. So, you know, it's it's not a kind of they're running around desperate over the next week to save the team or anything. This is a kind of actively launched process. I find it interesting that um, I find it interesting that that sort of uh, the termination of the title sponsorship was so instant because when you consider how important that title per- partnership was to Williams when it was announced and the fact that they enthusiastically signed a new long-term deal uh, and the fact that Rocket has responded by saying that it is, remains committed to its other motorsport uh, projects. Um, obviously, it sponsors uh, Venturi, for example, in, in, in Formula E. Um, it suggests to me that Williams has made that decision because it, it has its eye on on something else or some and, and as we as you said if it takes three or four months to get whatever the next stage of investment is is over the line i that's the only logical explanation i i can can think of i don't know if i'm being too too simplistic there um i don't mark do you reckon that's a sort of fair example fair way of adding two and two together or is there a bit is it is it difficult to exactly try and work out what the logic is behind it no, we, we we're trying to put the jigsaw together without all the pieces, and um, but I think that's a fair um, stab at it. Uh, perhaps there's a break clause in it, which um, if if you're going to end it, you have to end it by a certain date, um, and and perhaps they have um, their their plan is that they have someone in mind as a. a title sponsor, which is a bigger sponsor than that, which may be part of the um, uh, the, the negotiations. So, yeah, it's obviously tied in. Um, and it's, it's obviously, um, you, you don't, you don't just surrender, you don't just surrender income for, for no reason. So there must be the promise of something else there to replace it. We should move on to Renault because Renault has also, uh, also been in the news. Uh, Scott, it's reaffirmed its commitment to F1, despite having to cut 15,000 jobs globally as part of its major cost-saving programme. There's lots of speculation about the team's future. So does this statement close everything down now, or is there a bit more to it? Uh, well, obviously, we need to wait for them to actually make an agreement with Formula One. The Concord uh, negotiations were, uh, I think, at quite an advanced stage, and they seem to be progressing in a way that most people were happy with. But then, obviously, the, the pandemic hit, and that firmly moved uh, onto the back burner because... Uh, what's the point of discussing term commercial terms for teams that might not exist in 2021 if you don't uh, if you don't take action now? So the Re- Renault does need to actually sort of translate that intention to continue into a, into a signed contract, much like shall we say uh, Mercedes? I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll we might have time to get onto in this podcast as well. But in the context of a what is it? Around two billion euros cash saving, fifteen thousand redundancies. Um, keeping an F one team is 
that would have been quite a convenient opportunity for Renault to to slink away from F1 with the tail between its works team's legs. I, I would imagine that it would have wanted to stay in an, as an engine supplier regardless, but they've obviously they've, they've made it very very clear this isn't uh, this isn't just Formula One being um, left out of any communication about a bigger restructuring or anything like that they have they have specifically identified formula one in response to a, a question in the q a with investors uh, today uh, they've specifically said that they're in f1 and they're here to stay in formula one they've cited the cost cap and other cost saving initiatives as absolutely vital to that they said it's great news for renault they acknowledged that they had rivals that were spending considerably more than them so I think this is all positive. It's a reinforcement of some of the some of the things that Cyril Abitable was uh, has been saying really since since February and the season launch event in Paris. So I think it's all good news. I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent done uh, because uh, until it's signed, you never know if uh, things might might change. But it's it's more than just positive indications. Now there has been the firmest possible confirmation or commitment beyond uh, short of signing on the, on the dotted line. So I think we can almost take it as a given that Renault will, will be in F1 as a works team for, for the next few years at least. So how do you take it, Mark? Do you think that will sure Renault up properly and then we can get back to talking about whether they're going to sign someone like Alonso and get excited about that uh, possibility again? Yeah, I hope so. And I'm, I'm obviously very encouraged that they've made that um, verbal commitment. Uh, it, it, I would say that it's um, still an, uh, an evolving story. The the, the, the uh, financial crisis that the company is in is uh, pretty serious, but um, the the intention is there to do that. Um, also, at the moment we we don't have a, a concord agreement as such, which we we normally have. We normally have a a period of a X number of years where we know everybody that's in is committed to staying, and we don't have that at the moment because of the, the the chaos that has been caused by the pandemic, because nobody really knows what the income levels are going to be, so it's very difficult to um, do, a, do contracts going forward on that, and it just happened to be coming up for renewal at the time that the pandemic hit. So there's a sense that, you know, between the teams and, 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 the, and Liberty and uh, the governing body, that we're all in this together and we're all trying to get through it. And I don't think anybody's trying to, you know, um, pretend that they're going to commit to it whilst um, not quite committing to it. I don't think there's any uh, underlying trickery going on, um, but I would, I would say that it's, uh, it, 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 it's in a, um, a very, it's a state of flux that, that, that we're in with the whole, the, with the economy, and the automotive industry and Formula One itself. So I, I'm very encouraged that the Renault are um, saying that this is what they wish to do. Um, but, you know, I think we, we still have to be cautious. Yeah, it's an odd situation, isn't it? Because as you as you said, there's no Concorde, so there isn't really a Formula One World Championship next year as yet because it hasn't got any participants. So even though the, all these rules have been agreed and everything, we still need to get the firm set commitment but we have to say that in the case of Renault the fact the cost cap's in place and the fact that someone like Cyril Abitable can go to the board and say right 
these are the numbers, it's capped, so we can't go beyond that on, on, on these areas, means that it's a little bit more firm. So at least the board will know they won't be asked 12 months down the line to invest another extra chunk of money to be competitive, which is what basically has happened over the past decade with works teams. Mercedes had to do it back in the back in the day, didn't they, when basically there was the RRA and they were running to that, and then they had to go back to the board and say, no, we need more investment in order to, to do this, and it was forthcoming. But asking for that sort of thing can easily... Uh, lead to you you pulling out, so that that's probably the mechanism behind Renault's sort of positivity at this stage. I think um, one 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 thing that I thought was quite interesting uh, last week was Gunter Steiner uh, said I think he was on uh, with with Sky Sports. He he said that this has given manufacturers a, a clear line in the sand, as you were saying there, Ed. Um, you now know what your what your commitment is going to be, and this is something that has been a slight anomaly for for Renault because while it is a works team, it is arguably I mean obviously you've got the race team is based out of Enstone rather than at Viri with the engine engine operation, but Renault is arguably along with um, along with Ferrari the the it's one of only two authentic works teams on on the grid because uh, along with Ferrari you've got one company that's uh, building the engines and and the race and, and and the race car and running the race team obviously Mercedes you've got the engines uh, you've got the engine facility at Bricksworth and the race team out of, Bra- out of Brackley but it's basically it's a UK based team that's licensed to run under the Mercedes badge isn't it with limited financial input from Daimler so you can sort of you can split works teams into various uh, various categories. And R- Renault, while Renault has been right at the top in terms of uh, logistically what counts as a, as a works team, the budget has actually been really small. If you compare it to the likes of Red Bull, uh, Ferrari and Mercedes, you know, Renault is well behind. And if you, I, th- I think, I, I, I don't want to cut them too much slack. We've been critical of them with, with good reason because they have not... They haven't come close to achieving their lofty ambitions and uh, and what they said that they would would achieve when they came back to Formula One with the works team in 2016. But they also haven't spent enough money to 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 get that success. If you're not going to spend the same amount of money as the top three teams that have a massive baked in advantage over the rest of the grid, how can you how can you expect to actually close that gap up? So. I actually think Renault is roughly is in the fight that it should be in, given how much money it's been spending. So this cost cap and the other cost saving initiatives, this I can. It's so easy to see why Renault is is enthusiastic about it because if Renault has been willing to spend this much money so far, and it's probably going to be saving what a quarter of its budget at least going down to the one hundred and forty five million dollar budget cap you know they're going to the, the board's going to be pretty happy because if it's a justifiable marketing spend for them they're now going to have a massive massive opportunity to have success that they wouldn't they that, and they'd have never they wouldn't have got near it without this budget cap coming in because they can't use the amount of money they've been spending properly and catch up with a 150 million dollar 200 million dollar deficit to the big team so this has at least given them every fight in chance and it helps justify the board for all the effort and expense that's gone in so far yeah, I would I would add to that that they, they were caught in a little bit of a, a trap because, as you say, they they weren't uh, spending as much as um, Mercedes or Ferrari, um, but they didn't have as much income coming in either because they were no nowhere near as successful. So you do you do you put more in to become more successful, or do you start trimming back to try and equal your budgets out? And when we we did a, f- a few rough calculations for a piece we did on the on the race when we're talking about the cost caps and when you look at the difference between 
um, the spend and the income. Actually, the most expensive team of all to run is Renault, um, just because it's it's got a big budget, not the biggest, but a big budget, but it's got nowhere near the results of those bigger budget teams. Um, and it's, I think it worked out. Renault was the most expensive, followed by Mercedes, followed by Red Bull, and actually the cheapest team of all to run because of its income was Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, funny that, obviously. If you're in a position where you... Uh have a big amount of income regardless of what you do. That's a, that's a good start, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, Renault, we can say that as a positive, slightly less, uh, well, much less positive news is the news from from McLaren. Uh, Mark, I mean, sadly, it's having to cut 1,200 jobs across, across, across the whole McLaren group. That's over a quarter of its workforce. Around 70 of those, we think, are in the, the race team. So what does that tell us about, about McLaren's situation? Yeah, I think there's two different things going on at the same time, um, obviously linked by the um, pandemic. But uh, the on the automotive side, um, the, 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 they have been struggling even before uh, the the pandemic, pandemic with sales not quite what they're expecting, and you know producing more cars than they were selling. So obviously, that's only got to you can only do that for so long. Um, so that that. Obviously, the, you can imagine what this, the sales of supercars have done um, while in, in, in lockdown. So there's that. But at the same time, we've got the cost cap coming in. So I think McLaren was one of those teams that was probably slightly above um, where it needed to be. Um, unlike, you know, not like Mercedes or Ferrari or anything like that, where they need to, where they, you know, it's going to have to be quite brutal to, to get down to the, the cost cap. I think McLaren probably a little bit too big and so this is part of that but it's happened it, it's all been wrapped up in the same thing and then um, um, unfortunately the you know the, the, all those people have lost their jobs um, I don't think um, that's going to be the the end of it I think McLaren's uh, announcements probably just the, the first of uh, we're going to hear from several of the bigger teams so um, yeah I think it's there's going to be a little bit more of this, but hopefully it's got them in, in terms of the Formula One team, it's, it's got them in good shape now. Um, let's, let's hope that this is, um, that the, the, you know, the, the, the size, the, the, the optimum size it needs to be, um, for the, the new era that's coming. They've, they've had this sort of storm of factors, as Mark said, it's not just, it's not just the coronavirus crisis, but it, it's all added up to, I was looking at their um, their financial report for Q1 2020, for example, and it's it's 175 million pounds, I think, less that they've they've earned as revenue in the first quarter of this year compared to to last year. And obviously, as we saw when F1 released their numbers, we know that the the crisis has had a massive impact on that. But um, there's also been a, a minor drop in. Um, a minor drop in, in in revenue, a bit more sponsorship for the for the F one F one division, but they've had the all these cost what they're calling cost rationalisation methods, which uh, measures, which I think I think they want to save just under two hundred million pounds, and they want to um, I think they want to try and raise uh, around two hundred and seventy five million pounds for 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 the group uh, through um, uh, I think secured or unsecured um, alter- financing alternatives, so. McLaren as a whole is in this sort of very very critical phase where it's trying to balance its books and as as we've said you know with with Renault for example this would have been a very convenient opportunity for Renault to to just knock its F1 team on the head crisis 
in a difficult position anyway, needing to refinance, restructure and sort things out, mass redundancies, etc. And F1 team clashes with a lot of that or at least looks a little bit dodgy. And conceivably, McLaren could have gone the same way. I remember Zach Brown was one of the first, wasn't he? I think, it, or, or the first team boss to properly speak out about the concerns of the the, the, the the, the impact of the pandemic and said and said that up you know four teams could li- could could die and, and leave the grid he said that McLaren's future wasn't a hundred percent set that the the shareholders aren't just going to bankroll things indefinitely and, and write a blank checkbook and in, in the context of uh, in, in the context of this uh, restructuring plan and all the redundancies and the numbers that they've posted as well you now actually see exactly why McLaren was pushing so hard for you know they were the ones that tabled the 100 million dollar cost cap for formula one and that would have obviously i presume would have um i presume that would have resulted in even more redundancies for for mclaren because it would have been a 45 million dollars less uh to spend that they'll be working with now so i think they're looking at it as this is a necessary evil because it's that it's that horrible horrible situation of you know it's you've got to cut 25 percent of the company to save the other 75 percent and it's that's not a nice situation to be in i'm sure that doesn't make it any easier for for the people who fall within that 25 percent that's going to go but this, this is the situation it's 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 not just a case of like, oh we need to knock off a few million here you know the very fabric and state of the the company is is at stake and it also goes to show that even in situations like this, when you've got a team that's uh, that's part-owned by Montalacat, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Bahrain, that there's just not infinite money. There was criticism of McLaren when it uh, reportedly went for that government loan to try and help shore things up. Said, oh, well, it's owned by, the, by Montalacat, therefore they should just be able to pour money in. But everyone is suffering in terms of what they can put in. And unfortunately, we've got the outcome of, uh, of 1,200 jobs gone across the whole company, which is unfortunate, but... Yeah, probably probably necessary, at least for a, an organisation like Ferrari. They've talked about moving staff into other areas, which is why they've they've talked about doing, say, an IndyCar programme of some sort or another sports car programme. You know, they want to redeploy these people, which is the, the ideal outcome because then you get the rationalisation of, of the size of teams and also you get people not losing their jobs. The, the significance of the McLaren redundancies is... Um, I think it's put into perspective because Ed, you obviously spoke with with Claire Williams, but Williams at the moment aren't looking at redundancies, are they? They haven't made any, and they don't think they're planning to. They've obviously furloughed staff, like all of the UK-based teams, except Mercedes and Red Bull, I think, or except certainly except Mercedes. Um, so I, I, it's it's very very difficult. And Andreas Seidel, the McLaren team boss, when um, when McLaren were very very quick to to come out in praise of the the new F1 cost cost saving measures uh, last week, uh, and and Seidel said in in part of his statement that adjusting to the adjusting the way we work and right sizing the team to the new cap over the next months is a massive and painful task, and highlighted by our news earlier this week, and there he's referring to the restructuring and the redundancies. He says, we will sadly mean losing team members, but our aim is to be the best sized and most efficient team in the future. And this is what it all comes down to, isn't it? All these teams, whether it's McLaren or Renault or Williams, they might well have a really positive future, but there's going to be a really hard short term to get through. It's not just because we've ridden out the first couple of months of the crisis and there's all this good stuff going on in the medium term. It doesn't mean that the hard times are over by a long shot for some of these teams. 
We should briefly talk about what's going on at Mercedes, all sorts of rumours there. Mark, obviously you did a, uh, a small story on this uh, last Friday about, about the situation. What exactly is, is going on? Is there the possibility that Mercedes could cease being Mercedes and there's all these other shenanigans going on with talk about Toto Wolff's future? What, what's the reality from what you understand? It was all triggered by um, some speculation in the German press that Toto was about to step down from his role and that was triggering... Um, Daimler-Benz into reviewing its future involvement and uh, this was a story that ran in the German press but um, Daimler-Benz put out a very very strongly worded statement earlier this week saying absolutely we intend to be in Formula One for years to come and um, to continue our association with Toto. Um, What's happening is that his current contract comes to an end at the end of this year and they are still in negotiation uh, on a new one. And maybe that, together with the fact that he, he made that investment earlier in the year in Aston Martin Lagonda, maybe people have put two and two together and, and have got a, a bigger number. But as far as I understand, it's it's pretty much as stated in that um, sta- statement from the, the main company in, in Germany. Um, so that, that bit is... Just as as they've said, the, you would then, if if you're going to speculate, I would be, be speculating the fact that they're talking, they're discussing a new contract suggests it's going to be different to the old contract. Otherwise, you, it would be a simple matter to renew it, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm sure he's getting paid very well, and you can't say he hasn't been doing a good job given the track record of the. He's now the most successful team principal in in the history of F1. So. Uh, I don't think there'd be any complaints about um, you need to pull your socks up. But um, if they're talking about a different contract, perhaps a different role, and I, what, I thought back to Brazil last year. I remember when he, he, he chose not to come and he said beforehand that um, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't coming. He was going to monitor it from afar. And the, the team was led at the track on that occasion by James Allison. So maybe... Maybe that was just a dry run for the sort of thing that he has in mind, and maybe that's maybe that something like that is what's being discussed, um, and what what the terms of that would be. But I think all this mm, lack of of um, concrete news, concrete, we're doing this, we're doing this, and we're doing this, is 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 just sort of create a little bit of vacuum, and uh, the speculation has rushed in to fill it. Yeah, and certainly when it comes to Toto Wolff's role, it's reasonable to suggest that there may be something going on in terms of shifting it. Because obviously he's a he's a businessman first and foremost, isn't he? He's kind of he's done the F one team principal thing, so maybe he does want to kind of shift into a slightly different role, the sort of uh, fill fill the Nicky Lauda shape gap, for example, just to uh, throw an idea in. So. It, that's certainly not uh, not unrealistic. Uh, shall we move off teams and move on to the rules as a whole? We've touched on some of these, but there's some things worth really uh, delving into. Uh, Scott, when it comes to aero testing, F1 signed off a load of its rules package uh, last week for 2021 and 2022. Loads of things in there, technical sporting, financial regulations, all impacted. But perhaps the most interesting, certainly probably the most unusual one, even at a time when a cost cap's come in, is this uh, sliding scale for aero testing. Can you explain how this this aerodynamic handicap system works first? It's balance of performance. That's how it works. Don't say that. In a, in a good way. <laughs> in a good, it's certainly not... 
I remember being at Le Mans uh, 2015 or 2016 when the, um, was it the four GTs, I think. Uh, I remember I was all, I was quite liked covering GTE and there was some very, very controversial post-qualifying BOP changes, which the, uh, the organisers say, oh, you know, we've got the right to do this. It's like, yeah, well, so it's awful. Uh, BOP, as we know it in motorsport, but any kind of attempt to balance performance tends to be in really, uh, really clumsy, clumsy ways, really artificial. But the way Formula One's going to do it is actually quite elegant. So it's basically all around, uh, it's all around the restricted amounts of aerodynamic development that the teams are allowed. You've got a limited number of wind tunnel runs and time and hours that you can spend in the tunnel and the amount of uh, work you're allowed to do on the CFD side as well. And this is all... It's, it's, sorry if this sounds a little bit sort of boring and, and technical, but these are all sort of split into blocks of time called ATPs. Uh, they're aerodynamic testing periods, uh, which are eight weeks, eight weeks long as a, as a general rule. Um, so at the moment, the teams are, should be restricted to 65 wind tunnel runs per week, for example. And this is already going to go down for 2021. I think it's going to go down from 65 to a maximum of 40 wind tunnel runs. Uh, and I think, say something like 2000 CFD items that you're allowed to to generate. Um, so whether that's like a part or a full scale uh, 3D, uh, 3D drawing, whatever. Um, but the way it's, so the way it's going to work now is instead of everyone adhering to the same limits, there's going to be this sliding scale. So it's going to work at work similar to how American sports have a draft system whereby the, 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 the worst performing team, the last place team in the championship gets the 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 best cut of the deal and a sliding scale all the way to the the first place team which gets the 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 worst cut of the deal and in this situation it's going to work uh, in 2021 it's going to work with slightly smaller increments so Williams for example if it finishes last the 10th place team will get 112% of the aero testing limit so they'll get 112.5% of the wind tunnel runs that you're allowed or the CFD drawings that you're allowed to do. And then it will go down 2.5% at a time, all the way down to the first place team, which will only get 90% of, of, of that limit. Uh, and obviously this is, in percentage terms, doesn't mean anything. In real terms, what that means is the 10th place team is going to have 45 runs on the wind tunnel uh, per week and the, the first place team is only going to get 36. So that does, that. you know, that's that's something, but it's not a, it's not a huge amount. And then from 2022 uh, through to 2025, this is going to be this is going to basically double. So all the increments are all going to be five percent, and this is where it becomes a much bigger factor. So over the next few years, in theory, the the worst teams are going to have a lot more aerodynamic development freedom that should help them get a bit more on terms with the with the teams ahead of them. In this case, from 2022 onwards, the winning constructor is only going to have 70% of that aerodynamic allowance, uh, aerodynamic de- development allowance, and the last place team is going to get 115%. So 45% difference in the amount of... Uh, in the amount of aerodynamic testing that you can do compared to finishing first and last. And just again, to put that into perspective, to put it into real terms, it means that Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull, for example, if they finish first, second and third again, in 2022, they'd get less than half the number of wind tunnel uh, time that they that they have at, at the moment. Their CFD work would drop massively as well. The first place team would only get, would only be able to produce 1,400 CFD items uh, during uh, an, an aerodynamic testing period 
uh, so over over two months. Uh, whereas uh, the the team that finishes last will get two thousand three hundred, so nearly a, a thousand extra CFD uh, CFD items to produce. So it's really it's it's quite complicated. I've taken a bit of time there to try and explain it properly because it's you've got to be able to get your head around it and actually put those percentages into real terms. I think to actually appreciate the scope and the scale of uh, of of what's what's coming because. Otherwise, you just hear, oh, well, they're going to get 2% extra aerodynamic freedom. Well, what does that mean? You know, does that really sound like a lot? I don't think it does. But when you put it into real terms, you see that this this could and should actually have a significant impact. The thing I quite like about this is to take your BOP. I'd argue it's not BOP in the conventional sense, but it's almost balance of potential, should we say. Because, for example, if I've got 10% more aero testing than Mark Hughes' F1 team, if his team does a better job with that than me, he can still finish ahead of me. It, do, it doesn't guarantee, it's not like ballast, just a, a blunt instrument that just slows you down. It impacts your potential. But if you use what you've got wisely, there's still scope within that to be a good team, an average team, or a bad team within that, which I, is what I really like about this idea. How, how do you take it, Mark? Yeah, I agree. I think it's quite an elegant solution. I, I think I'm right in saying it, it, it was sort of inspired by um, MotoGP. Didn't they do something similar with the engines? engine developments um but it's it yeah it is like a nice and i think it will have an effect i think the the best teams will still be the best teams and you'll probably see the momentum of that continue in into the the, the new regulations but i'd be surprised if under those terms you could get a team that would have year on year on year on year on year success like Mercedes recently or Red Bull before that. I think it will introduce a, an element of volatility into it, which can only be good. And it's, as you say, it's not a blunt instrument. Um, and it's still a, it, it's still about, it's still also going to be about who's doing the best job. And if you say it's artificial, I would counter that by saying, well, it's also artificial that the top teams get paid so much more than the, the the lower teams, thereby just sort of um, putting the, the 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 competitive order it's static. Um, so it's it's countering that. So um, yeah, I, I'm I think it's a very good move, um, and it yeah, the, the, there's um has been. I've heard voices saying, "Well, you're you're actually getting the the teams that can least afford it to do the 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 you know the the most." tunnel work but it's still less it's still less than they're doing at the moment so they're still getting a cost reduction but they're getting a competitive advantage and if they can get a competitive advantage then their income um, increases so it's 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 a, as we were saying before it's about the difference between your expenditure and your income and i think it's um in in those terms if you see it in those it full it, in the fuller picture um it, it can only be a good thing and if you're if you're if you take a Williams team for example, and we, we can get onto this part of the cost saving measure separately if you like, Ed, in a bit. But there's also going to be open source components coming into play, whereby teams have to make their designs for certain parts uh, available on online to to cut the research and development costs of uh, of of all teams. Um, so smaller teams, because you wouldn't have to re- research and 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 develop and uh these components yourself and the bigger teams because these parts will be made freely available so there's no point spending an absolute fortune trying to find some kind of tiny performance gain from them because then 
anyone can just come up, uh, take the design and make the, the the part that you want to make. So if you're a team like Williams, for example, you could make a cost saving by not machining and or not designing and doing all of this stuff on your own pedals or your own steering columns or, or whatever is your DRS, uh, the flap or rear wing adjuster rather. Um, and you can take that saving and you can say, okay, well, we're going to allocate the majority, as much of our budget as possible to absolutely maximize this advantage we've now got in wind tunnel testing. And that's going to be really significant because the while the bigger the bigger um the, the bigger difference between how much uh the, the the last place team has and the other teams have will will be more from 2022. When we come to when it comes to designing cars for the new regulations, the new technical rules, this could be really significant because it means that when all the teams get to work next year in 2021, designing the cars for the new technical rules, some teams are going to have a small amount of extra aerodynamic development time for these new cars, which means, and it's not going to be very much, but even if you've got two, an extra an extra run in the wind tunnel every week compared to your next nearest opposition, and you've got nine extra runs in the wind tunnel compared to mercedes for example that is going to be an opportunity it doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to do it but it's an opportunity for you to do a better job and maximize the new rules and then when we get into 2022 let's say williams halves its deficit to mercedes if that's what it's able to do for the new car rules it's going to start 2022 stronger but in 2021 it will have raced with the let's be honest fairly rubbish mediocre car that it's got at the moment so it's, it might well finish in the uh, last in the constructor championship again in 2021 which means it starts 2022 with an even bigger allowance of aerodynamic development compared to the biggest team it's already slashed the deficit and then it's got an even bigger run-up to then make a bigger step in the second year so i i, I think it's the sort of thing that you're not going to have ultimately a team finishing last in the championship every year and just getting constant free hits at development. But it's going to be the sort of thing where I reckon over a two-year period, you could have some teams like Williams, for example, having the potential to make massive gains. And in the longer term, it's just a nice little measure to stop big chasms of performance uh, opening up. So as time goes on, it'll have a bigger correcting influence. But I, I like the fact it, that all of this still leaves some room for innovation you can look at the the way the 2022 rules are uh, delayed from 2021. Of course, technical rules are very, very restrictive, which is perhaps a bit of a problem. We might get onto that, uh, that, that in a moment. And in fact, there's a chance now we can have a look at the, the rules as a whole. I mean, Mark, with all of this, we've got the sliding scale of aero testing. We've got the cost caps. That's $145 million for 2021. It drops $5 million for 22, and then another $5 million to $135 million for 2023 to 2025. There's all the measures to cover the cost of certain transferable parts, the open source stuff. If we look at the package as a whole, do you think that this combined with the expected... Uh, balancing of the uh, of the sharing of the financial riches that's that's promised with the the new Concord when it happens. Do you think this will succeed in making F one a more fair playing field? And fair is is the word because it's not about it, it equalising everyone because you're still going to have teams that do a good or a bad or an average job. But is it narrowing the the kind of window of of potential so that? if you do a good job with what you've got, you're going to get some better results than you might do as a midfield team today. Yes, absolutely it will. Um, and I think it's been fundamentally unbalanced and unfair ever since the 2013 
Concord Agreement, which was done in a big hurry when um, they were trying to launch F1 on the Singapore Stock Exchange, and they needed the big team signed up quickly, otherwise they hadn't really got anything to to sell. And so the big teams took advantage and, and did um, deals that have got a you know led to a difference. Just a difference um, of seventy million per year in budgets between them and a, you know, a, a, a mid-grid team. So that that means then you're never going to catch them like that. That 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 set in stone that that, that competitive picture. That those top three teams are going to be like that. That have to drastically mess up to not still be the top three teams. Um, so that that stasis is, is going to be gone. Um, whether whether it's enough, it, it, that's in the lap of the gods. That depends what the economy does um, post post pandemic, um, because although we've got a much fairer distribution of income, um, we don't we we only know the percentages. We don't know what the total numbers are going to be, and that's that's not uh, within um, Formula One's control. Um, but I think it's a very good effort at getting um, getting the sport, uh, making it more manageable, smaller. Um, more robust, and I think it's been living beyond its means for um, ever since probably the the banking crisis of two thousand and eight. And this is sort of forced forced it to be more uh, put a more realistic framework around it. I'm kind of in two minds about it because I agree with everything you said there. I like the the cost cap structure. I like I like all of the measures that have been put together. My biggest concern is just that kind of scepticism that's that's created by history, really, that these things tend not to kind of work as as hopes. Obviously, a big factor that I find it very, very difficult to pass judgment on is whether the cost capping will really work. The financial regulations, obviously, are a, a dramatically more robust and absolute uh, set of regulations than the, the resource restriction agreements of just over a decade ago that eventually teams could just drive a horse and cart through without any any trouble but the big question is how well they can be enforced and that's a that's a challenge of, of forensic accounting effectively isn't it which i'm massively underqualified to, to judge but if the cost cap works if f1 can continue on this course and if there's not too much politicking and people people really keeping the focus on the common good rather than just their own individual good then it could be very very positive and, and that common good is important because F1 ultimately is nothing without its 10 teams. I don't care about all of the rest of it, your races, the F1 organisation. There are 10 teams, each fielding two cars, that put out the core product of Formula 1, which is the racing. Without that, it's absolutely nothing. So it's in the interest of F1 to have that group of 10 teams sustainable, stable, and all able to have at least a chance, a hope of competing. And then if you've got that, you might have a chance of getting another team or two in just to bolster the field, make things a, li- a little bit better. So it, it, it feels kind of positive, but the, the cynic in me says, oh God, how's this going to be ruined down the, down the line? What, what do you think, Scott? I think that the, um, I think the situation that we've gone for at the moment has been the catalyst for the necessary uh, robustness of change that, uh, that otherwise Formula 1 would be completely missing. So I think you'd have had you might well have had a, a lot of the a lot of the same sort of fundamental changes but you wouldn't have had the smaller bits around them that just sort of underline everything and give everything a little bit more strength so you know we'd have had the 
we'd have had a budget cap uh, without this because that had been enshrined uh, last year. So that was already coming, but we wouldn't have had a budget budget cap that's going to be $30 million lower than it would, would otherwise have been and then is going to get l- even lower, $5 million over the next uh, two years down to $135 million for uh, for 2023. I was just trying to do basic maths in my head there while talking about numbers, which was uh, which was quite good of me. Um, so you've got, you know, that that's that's one example. Uh the the engine manufacturers were really, really pushing for for ways to try and cut some costs. So they were you know talking about there was going to be dyno restrictions already and just trying to hold things back. It's one of the big things um threatening Honda's continuation in Formula One is the amount of money that they're spending. Well, because of this coronavirus crisis, now we're going to have limited number of engine upgrades, starting immediately with the 2020 season. So uh, that will eventually lead to a return of engine freezes because the number of upgrades you get, you'll be allowed to make one upgrade basically on each component from the end of one season to the end of the next until we get to two years before the new engine formula comes in. So that should happen around 2026. So let's say from 2024 onwards, uh, you won't be able to change anything on the engine. So the engines will be frozen for one season, two seasons, maybe even three seasons. And this is something that wouldn't have happened. So this is my point that we'd have had some changes anyway, which would have been quite nice. Uh, They would have probably sounded very promising. They would have had an impact, but I think the impact would have been limited. And then I suspect there's a fair few people or companies in Formula One that would have just gone back to the old ways. I think the changes now go so far in some areas and are so fundamental and so deep rooted that I don't think that's possible. And I think this could genuinely be sustained change for the better. And the really exciting thing about that is what it could pave the way for down the line. If this works as hoped, then we could get to the, the kind of the, the utopia whereby if the costs are controlled in such a way and the teams are sustainable and you can't just turn it into a spending arms race, then maybe it is possible to open up those regulations again and, and bring in more innovation, etc. The thing that everyone always says that they want, obviously, as I've mentioned, the 2022 technical regs are very, very limiting. You're very, very tightly controlled in in what you can do, which is a bit of a shame. But maybe if the if these conditions all work, we could down the line start to free up those regulations. You might even get that tire war you're so uh, you're so keen for, Mark. Do you think that's the the kind of the the best case scenario that we might look five six years down the line and say yeah we've sorted this now we could actually open things up a little bit yeah that absolutely would be the ideal and it's it's not just a um, a pie in the sky idea I mean Ross Braun's gone on record as saying that's ideally what they want to do but it's 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 a medium term aim it's not it's not something they can just go straight to so. In order to get, it's quite ironic that in order to get to a stage where they could contemplate opening out the regulations, they've had to be, go even more standardised um, because they're bringing the, the the costs down at the same time. They're putting this, this, the spending limit on it at the same time, and that's all just to stabilise to get the, the the sport into a, a sustainable shape. And if they can do that, and if the economy supports them doing that, and everything works as you know, as, as you say, in the idealized world, yes, I think they they would like to do that. And there's there's always a um, there's, there's always a line to be walked between having um, a, a, a field of um, very very similar cars uh, that you can see in theory. It doesn't usually work out like this in practice, but 
that you can see who how the drivers stack up because you the, the cars are near near enough the same in in performance. Um, some people would like that. Some people just want to see that um, and just have just have it as a driver's championship and the cars are just incidental. But that's absolutely never been what F1's been about. And I don't think it should just be that. I think it it should also always be a technical competition. It's, um, it's a multi-dimensional sport. That's what makes Formula One so... You know, so so special. It 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 has so many dimensions, and we've lost a lot of those dimensions just to keep the spend at insane levels. Um, we, we've we've had to lose things like uh, tire competition and other technical um, aspects of competition, whereby the the, the cars are, are pretty much um, designed already already by the regulation, and then it's just about tiny little increments and building up the accumulation of those that separates out the big spenders from the less big spenders. And I, that's, I don't think that's a great format. And I think we need to, our aim should be absolutely to get back to a position where it is feasible to reintroduce more technical variation and whereby the cars look more um, visibly different from, from each other and whereby there's scope for sudden um, changes in the in the competitive order. Somebody makes a breakthrough, and the others have to scurry to, to, to catch up. And, and let's not forget as well. This is all going to be underpinned by by teams, in theory, getting a nicer spread of the the commercial revenue. So it's not just we're not just talking about teams having their costs slashed. Um, that it, it should be a, a situation where the smaller teams get a nicer a nicer slice of the pie. And while it's not, that's not going to suddenly turn all ten teams into profit churners, and you're going to have a massive list, a uh, massive line of people queuing up outside the F1 door to, to to get in because it's a great way to to make a load of money. It's still going to require a lot of money to to run an F1 team and run it well. It's just gonna it's just gonna shore everything up. And if you could, if you then have this situation where teams are able, like a Haas, for example, is able to look seriously at being in F1 for five or ten years, then the build-up you're going to get over that five or ten years of competitiveness, it's just going to be constant gain. It's going to be what Mark's talking about, finding those those small areas of performance. And it 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 could F1 could be on a in a position now where everything is going to start snowballing for for the good, but. That isn't. That doesn't mean that we should just assume that everything's suddenly going to be perfect and we're going to reach this utopia you talk about, Ed. But it is. Uh, can we say it's at least slightly more attainable or realistic to shoot for than it would otherwise have been? Well, at least F one's working towards it in the right place. This was always the problem I had because it was always about the financial side. It was always about the inequality of the the share of revenue, and I'm not even necessarily talking about the prize money, about whether you should get more for finishing first than last. It's the fact that teams like Ferrari, like Mercedes, were getting a load more cash simply for existing, and that and that was never a good situation. And that is a big part in why we've seen the top three being out on their own, and there just being no social mobility as I. I like to call it. So the hope is that this will generate a much more collaborative F1 where everybody sees the benefit of giving each other a chance to make it work because the better the overall F1 product is, the better it is for, for everybody and the more sustainable it will be. That certainly is the uh, is the hope. Like I say, there's a, there's a cynical streak in me that says, oh, how's this going to be messed up? How's the Concorde going to be messed up? There's still some uh, a lot of arguing and a lot of debating and a lot of negotiating to be done there. But 
yeah, maybe it maybe it's possible. So yeah, we'll we'll see how it's uh, how it progresses. There's plenty of stuff about all the topics we've talked about on this podcast and more on the races website. That's the hyphen race.com. Remembering to put the hyphen in there, so I'm following my own advice. Uh, there's an interesting piece from Gary Anderson called How F1 is Undermining Its Rules Revolution. He's not quite so convinced with certain aspects of the rules package as perhaps some of us are, and actually he makes some very, very interesting points in there about what he sees as some of the weaknesses there. I've done a piece on Williams. There's all the stories about Renault, about McLaren, about Mercedes there to read as well. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Just search for The Race. Loads of videos there. And also, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast, The Race F1 podcast. There's also the Gary Anderson F1 show. Bring back V10s, our, our retro podcast that recently finished its uh, its first season. Also eSports, MotoGP, Formula E, everything you could want to read, watch or listen to. Thanks very much, Scott Mitchell, Mark Hughes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more from the Race F1 podcast. (laughs) 